All right, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. Let me begin this way. There was a book that came out early in the 20th century, early 1900s, and it was called this. You might have heard of it. It's been in constant print since that, since that time, uh, but I don't remember reading it, but, uh, but it was a popular book. It was called this, Five Children and It. Five Children and It. And it was a story about five children who discover a creature that is able to grant them their wishes. And so they ask this creature for their wishes, and the, and the creature grants it to them. And um, what happens is in the story is each one of their wishes is granted, but then obviously it, things go wrong. So a couple of examples. They felt like the children felt like they were ugly. And so they wished that they would be beautiful. And so they were made beautiful. The problem is no one recognized them anymore. So all the people they knew didn't know who they were because they'd become so beautiful. Uh, one, one of the children was being picked on, so he asked and wished that he would be big so he could, would no longer be picked on, but he became 11 feet tall, so he became enormous. Of course, they wished that they would have money. Of course, that would be, you would imagine that would be their first wish. And so they found this giant gravel pit full of money that was thousands of years old and was long since out of circulation. It was absolutely useless to them. They were, caring, they were caring for their baby brother during all of these adventures, and they wished that somebody else would want to care for their baby brother. The problem was then everybody wanted to care for their baby brother. They actually had to take steps to protect their baby brother from being kidnapped because everybody wanted the baby. They wished that they could be in a great castle, and they were whisked away into a castle only to discover that it was under siege. They wished for jewelry, and they went home and discovered their home full of jewelry. Not lots of jewelry, I mean full. Like the home was completely full of jewelry, and then one of the members of their household that they cared for dearly was falsely accused of stealing it all. So all of their wishes go horribly wrong. So I want to ask you this question as we jump into the passage this morning. What do you wish God would do for you? What do you wish... God would do for you? I'm going to answer that question, not for me, that would be embarrassing. I'm going to answer how the Bible answers that question, and then we're going to spend the balance of our morning learning what it looks like in our lives to find our way back to what God wishes for us. So what do we wish God would do for us? Well, I'll tell you what God did for us. To find the Lord, according to the Bible, is to find holiness. To find the Lord is to find the Lord's holiness. Or we can summarize the passage that we're going to look at this morning this way. We are made holy to live holy. In faith, by putting our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, in that moment we are made holy. Praise the Lord, right? And now he calls us in that holiness to live holy. So we might wish for a lot of things from God. Many, many things we would wish for from God. What God has given us is holiness in Christ that we might live in the holiness that he has given us in Christ. So we're made holy to live holy. So let's begin in verse 3 and 4. Sexual immorality, impurity, and envy must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. 
We're made holy to live holy. In order to get there from here, we need to answer this question, is God enough? Is God enough? Think of it this way. What do we wish that God would do for us is uh, this. Uh, let, me, let me restate that in a way that's more confusing. Wishing is this. This is what it means to wish. I know what I want. And if I get what I want, everything will be solved. Okay, when we have a wish, a desire we want fulfilled, what it says is, I know what I want. And I know when I get what I want, everything that I am worried about will finally be solved. Then notice that's what happened with the children. They knew what they wanted, and they figured when they wished for something, it would solve all their problems. So what we do is we come to God, and I say, boy, I wish God would do this or that or the other thing because I know what I want, and I know if I, I know if I had it, all my problems would go away. But we know that's not true. Number one, how good are you at knowing what you want? Pretty good. And then once you get it, did all your problems go away? Generally not. Here's what is, happens when we find God through Christ, is we now have God. He makes us holy in Christ, and then he gives us everything he has. We've covered this already in the book of Ephesians earlier this year. We discovered that in Christ, we are co-heirs with Christ of the kingdom of God. That means everything God owns in Christ, we own. So in Christ, we have God himself in relationship. He makes us as holy as Jesus himself by putting our faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins. And then he gives us everything he has, and all of it is good. That's all that God does for us. Co-heirs with the kingdom of God. And he says, this is, this is what defined us. Holy defines us, holy and righteous in, in relationship with God and owning everything that God owns. And then he describes how our passions and our desires work here in verses 3 and 4. And he says, our appetites, though, are geared differently. He says, in us is a desire for sexual satisfaction that is uh, immoral and impure. The, the Bible describes proper and good sexual uh, satisfaction to, to occur within marriage. And we have been inventing ways to have sexual satisfaction outside of marriage since the beginning of time. Not only that, but our passions are driven by a desire for what everything, everything that everybody else has. The envy that is born in the heart of every single human uh, is drives us to have more than the person next to us, have w what is better than the person next to us. And the Bible says here at the end of verse 3, immorality and impurity and envy shouldn't even be named among the body of believers because it is not proper among the saints. And I want to cl clarify what that means. Some of you are reading that with a British accent. It's not proper. No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying it's impolite or rude. He's saying the two are opposed to each other and they don't make any sense. He's saying that uh, if we are described as saints, and saints is just a fancy word for people who have been made holy, holy ones. 
It's just, a, it's just a way of describing all believers in Christ. They have been made holy in Christ. You don't have to become a Christian and then hope one day to become a saint. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. You're one who has been made holy. And what he is saying is to pursue our appetites in immoral and impure ways, to pursue stuff as a means of satisfaction is something wholly different than someone who has been made a holy one in Christ. It's not that it's merely forbidden or it's not polite or it's rude. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense who has been given the kingdom of God, someone who has received all of the good things of God to then pursue satisfaction somewhere else. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you have been given everything that is good in God and now you're going to pursue your personal sexual satisfaction or a personal um, security of possessions somewhere other than God. He's saying it's not proper in such a way that he says, that doesn't make any sense at all. Someone who has received everything to pursue satisfaction somewhere else. It's just something that is uh, contrary to the identity of those who are in Christ. Maybe I can put it this way. It's not merely that sexual immorality and greed and envy are forbidden, but for those who are in Christ, it's strangely contradictory to who we are. It's not merely that good Christians don't do naughty things. I've known too many good Christians to know that's not true. What he is saying is these things are strangely contradictory to who we've become. It doesn't make any sense for someone who has received everything to pursue something else in a lesser place. What is fitting is thankfulness. Notice he contrasts uh, these deeds of the flesh with what comes out of our mouth in verse 4. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. What he is describing here is what goes on in our heart being expressed through what we say. He's saying what is fitting is thanksgiving, not the holiday, although that is also fitting. He's saying thankfulness from our heart is fitting. What does it mean to be thankful to the Lord for everything he's given to us? Let me put it this way. God in Christ has given us his whole kingdom. He's given us righteousness in Christ, access to God that is uninhibited. And we can say this in a thankful way. You know what? I'm good. I've got everything I need. Thank you, Lord, for giving me everything I could possibly want. That's thankfulness. Now, it's impossible to be thankful if, my, if I'm driven by my passions to pursue contentment, peace, and satisfaction in every possible way other than where God is. Pursue satisfaction from a sexual relationships with someone other than my spouse. Pursue satisfaction by owning just simply as much as I can possibly own. And God is, is saying, well, I thought I was enough for you. And he's saying thankfulness is that which reveals a heart that is contented in the things God has given us. There's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15. We call it the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. Do you remember the parable? Do you remember the story? He has two sons. The father is very wealthy. And the one son comes to his father and says, Father, I would like you to give me my inheritance now. And uh, so the father does that. He sells some of his property and gives his son his inheritance. And then the son uh, then takes his inheritance and goes to a far off country and squanders it in wild living. 
And as we have heard from many commentators, what the son has desired to do is he wanted the father's stuff instead of the father, and he wanted to live in such a way that acknowledges that he wanted the father dead and not alive. Do you remember how the story ends? The son comes to his senses, and he returns home to his father, and the father receives him and restores him. And then the father celebrates with him. So I want to draw this contrast in the relationship of the lost son with his father to us. The son wanted to fill his appetites, didn't he? So he goes to a far off country where the father isn't and seeks to fill his appetites and he is never satisfied. So he returns home and what does the Bible say the father does? He kills the fattened calf and satisfies the son's appetites. The problem we have with, wanting, uh, with allowing God to provide for us is built into our sin nature, is a desire to have everything God has without God. We want it on our own. We want to do it our way. What frustrates us is God insists on being a part of the equation. It's not that God wants us dissatisfied. He wants us satisfied with what comes from his hand. And we want to cut his hand off and just keep his stuff. And the lost son discovers that he's only truly satisfied when he receives that from which is from the father. And these behaviors in the community of the believer, sexual immorality, impurity, envy, and in the kind of talk that comes along with these things, it reveals most profoundly that we aren't satisfied with God, that we have not uh, received an attitude of thankfulness and contentment with what God has provided. The Ten Commandments back in Exodus chapter 20 talks a little bit about envy. I don't know if you knew that. It's one of the commands, but it's interesting how this command is stated. This is Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not, normally you see these, if you see these on a placard, it says, you shall not envy. Have you seen that? Maybe it's a bumper sticker. That's not a popular bumper sticker probably. You shall not envy. And we all say, oh, that's simple. Okay, I'll just stop envying. Oh, I guess it's easy for you guys. Okay, now it's embarrassing. You shall not envy. Here's the thing, though. He actually makes a list. Here we go. You shall not envy your neighbor's house. The entire real estate market is based on envying our neighbor's house. The whole thing. Why do you need a bigger house? Because you need more stuff. Have you ever bought a house and had it just sit, sit empty? Anybody ever had that happen where you get a bigger house? He's like, boy, that one room, it just doesn't have anything in it. It's funny. The same thing happens to me. But when, now we got to say, well, when you buy the house, what do you say? What are we going to do with all this room? I mean, what are we going to do? And pretty soon you're pulling a, a backhoe in there to try to shovel the stuff out in the back porch. All right. You shall not cover, covet, you shall not envy your neighbor's house. You shall not envy your neighbor's wife. You shall not envy your neighbor's employees. You shall not envy your neighbor's ox or his donkey. Now, okay, let's reframe that. Nobody hears, oh, that's a nice looking donkey. So let's read, Let, you will not envy your neighbor's cars. Okay, now we're hitting it. You shall not envy anything that is your neighbor. So there's the Traeger. None of you guys? Really? Well, I don't even know why I prepared this message. This room is not struggling with sin whatsoever. Okay, good. I prepared this for the wrong church. 
The, what it says is it's not merely don't envy. Don't wish you had more stuff. This relationally, what it is, you're looking at, we're looking at one another and saying, they're more satisfied than me. God has dealt more kindly with them than they, he has with me. He has a better job, a better house, a better a relationship with his wife. And I have none of these things. God is not enough for me. We are made holy to live holy. Where we fall into this trap is this, where we fall into the trap of envying other people's stuff. And when we fall into the trap of seeking sexual satisfaction outside of marriage is when this is true, this statement, and you can write it down if you want. We fall into these traps when I say this, my desires are more accurate than God's good. What I want is more accurate than God's good. When I want sexual satisfaction outside of marriage, what I am saying to God is, your good is not good enough. You know, you don't really get me. You don't really understand how I'm wired. That's what we're saying to God in that moment. Is, is, no, you, you have not provided a satisfactory way for me to enjoy physical and relational intimacy, God. My desires are more accurate than your good. And the same is true when we look at other people's stuff and say, I wish I had their stuff or more stuff than I have. What we're saying is my desire for more stuff is more accurate than the good things God has given me. We're made holy to live holy, and this isn't just merely an exercise of trying not to be bad and trying to be more good than bad. The question really fundamentally is, is God enough for us? And as long as God is not enough, or as long as God's stuff is not good enough for us, we will always pursue satisfying our passions in our own ways, and that's always going to lead to life. Well, that scared me. That's always going to lead to life where we're pursuing our own pleasures. We're made holy to live holy, but here, let's add this. We are made holy to live holy with God. To leave the far-off country and come home and be satisfied with that good thing that God has given us from his good hand. Fundamentally, you have to ask yourself this question, is that what you want? Do you want to be with God? I mean, you might even evaluate the patterns of your own life right now, and you say, "Does if somebody were to look into the deep recesses of the darkness of your own heart and life and decisions, would they say, boy, this person really loves being with God? Or would we have to say, there are many areas of our life where we say, God, I don't want you. I've got my own ways. Made holy to live holy. Is God enough? Okay, look at verse 5 with me of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Made holy to live holy, this question I want to answer with in this sec segment is this. Is God serious? Is God serious? Remember what Jesus said over in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard it say, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we may ask this question when it comes to living rightly before God. 
and living rightly as a community of believers is who can do this? How is this even possible? What we have to understand is God is serious about us living lives consistent with his ways, but we have to understand this is more than just a behavior issue. This is more than just trying to be good and not be bad. This is an issue related to who we are in Christ. It has everything to do with our identity. Look again with me at verse 5 of Ephesians 5. Everyone, you can be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or who is an idolater. How is that being described? What they're saying is everyone who is defined, identified in these things are not going to find themselves in the kingdom of heaven. Where do we need to find our identity? In Christ. Everyone who is in the kingdom of heaven, their, their identity is in Christ. And what the, the author is here saying is, don't get this sideways. If your identity is idolater, then you can't also be in Christ. Now, it bothers some of us because... We want to make sure we're in Christ. I would hope you would want to make sure you're in Christ. So let's think about this before we freak out too much. We've got to freak out a little bit. The verse was intended to freak us out a little. So if you're, are you freaking out a little? Okay, then you're reading it right. Let's go back to the prodigal, uh, prodigal son or the, the lost son. Remember the lost son took his dad's money, squandered it in reckless living. What does reckless living mean? He bought Bitcoin. I don't, that's ridiculous. Some of you don't even get that. I don't even get that joke. Um, it means he bought all kinds of food he wanted to eat. He lived in fancy places that he wanted to live. And then, frankly, he spent money to have sexual expression with people who would accept, do that for a fee. All right, hired prostitutes. So you would say, well, his issue is he's just behaving poorly. Certainly he was. He was making terrible, terrible decisions. The end was bankruptcy and all of his friends gone. But at the end of the day, what was the real issue for him? And he came to his senses. What did he say? What am I doing here? The issue was he was in a far off country. I mean, certainly he'd behaved terribly. Certainly. Nobody's disputing that. But the issue really that came down to what was the problem in his relationship with him and his dad was he was in the wrong place. The issue was his identity was bound up in pursuing his passions instead of his identity being, I'm with my father. The issue is behavior, but it has to do more so that he went to a far off country and walked away from his dad. You realize both sons did this. Remember, both sons did this in the story of the lost son. Look with me, Luke 15, verse 28, if you have your finger there. It's a really good story, so if we get bored with the sermon, feel free to read it. It's not very long. You might have to read it two or three times to get to the end of the sermon. Remember, the younger son came home. The father greeted him gladly, gave him a robe, gave him a ring, gave him a kiss. Threw a big, giant party for him. Welcomed him as his son. The older son came in from the field. This is verse 25. As he drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. That means this was a good party. Just keep that in mind when you're thinking about God. Dude knows how to party, okay? I mean, the music was loud enough that as he's walking in, he's like, what is that? 
got these big giant subwoofers out in the front lawn. I don't know how that guy partied, but it was a good enough party. The guy didn't get all the way into the house and realize, oh, they're having a spot of tea. Everybody's sitting around and being dainty and speaking in their inside voices. No, this was, this party was going. Neighbors were calling the police, reporting it. And he gets in and he says, what's going on? He says, your, your brother came home. You know what he's thinking right away? He says, oh, no, my brother took over the house. That wild living brother has come and brought his party home. But then he discovers that it wasn't the younger brother's party. The dad was throwing this party to celebrate the younger brother. And now his mind is blown. What is wrong with this picture? He refuses to go in. This is what the dad says to him. Your brother has come. We've killed the fattened calf. Verse 28, he was angry. He refused to go in. Where was the father? In the party. Where was the older son? He refused to be with the father. This was not the kind of dad I want. I wish my dad was dead. What kind of a dad would throw a party for that loser? I have served you faithfully. I have gone to church every single week. I have volunteered my... Uh, okay, I'm sorry. And then you're going to bless that guy? Oh, you Tell me you've said that before, right? So you come to church, you see that guy. He shows up to church once every two years, and every time he shows up, he's got more stuff than you'll ever have. Drives you nuts. Not me, though. I've got this figured out. I confess that was a total lie. The older son refuses to go in. Is the issue that he wasn't good enough? Is the issue his behavior? Is the issue his faithfulness? No, what's his issue? He doesn't want to be with the father. See, both the older son and the younger son in his rebellion had the same issue. They didn't want the father. And that's what verse 5 of Ephesians chapter 5 is telling us. He's saying, do you want the father or not? And pursuing the passions and appetites of our flesh, at some level, at some point, has to answer the question for us, do I even want the father? To be in the kingdom of heaven is to be with and in the Father by the work of Christ. And at some point, in the reality of that truth, it impacts where we stand. Am I going to stand in my passions and my flesh and pursuing my own desires, or am I going to stand in the Father and trust that he is good and will provide all that is needed? Both of these sons, the older son and the younger son, had the same heart issue. but only the younger son ended up in the presence of God because he, he understood. The key here, is God serious? Yes, God wants us with him in his presence. Matthew five twenty nine. Jesus says it this way. I'm going to read it. I don't know how to read it in such a way to make it not shocking. I think Jesus was intending to shock if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole, whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body would go into hell. One commentator, it might have been John Stott, I can't remember, said this. The other option is just don't look. I mean, if you've got to gouge your eyes out, that's one way of going. Or don't look. But what he is saying is, if something is going to lead me, 
to the place of my own kingdom and not the kingdom of God, it is better to do whatever it takes to put sideboards up in my life to say, no, God has called me into his kingdom and I want to live his ways in his holiness because he is, in fact, good. Is God serious? What do you think? Yeah. We have to acknowledge this. At the very minimum, we have to acknowledge this from Ephesians 5 as well as Matthew 5, if you'll give me this much at least. We do not take sin as seriously as God takes it. We just simply don't take it as seriously as he's done. And there are some things you take very, very serious. But no matter how serious you take it, you don't take it as seriously as God takes it. And what the Bible is telling us in Ephesians chapter 5, it's so serious that there is a certain point where we say, you know what, my life makes it quite clear I am not living in God's kingdom. I am living in a kingdom of my own making, pursuing my own desires, and the last thing I want is God interrupting that. Where is our identity? Is it going to be found in Christ and the calling he has placed on us to live in him, or is it going to be found in pursuing our own passions and our own desires. We are made holy to live holy because God's ways really are good and we can trust him in that. All right, let's close with this. Matthew, did I say Matthew? I meant Ephesians. Ephesians 5, let's read verses 6 and 7. Ephesians 5, excuse me, verses 6 and 7. Let me just reread them again just to remind you. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. I know full well we ended in the middle of a sentence in many of the English translations, but, well, we're just going to do it that way anyway, so deal with it. All right, so we want to live holy, or we are made holy to live holy. So this final question, is God true? Do we, excuse me, do we really believe him? Do we really believe that what God has to say is true? And that's what he's saying here in verses 6 and 7. Don't let anyone deceive you. Don't be deceived. There are some who are coming to say, uh, listen, God is good and he offers grace and Jesus died on the cross. That's fantastic. That's, That's great. But at the end of the day, God doesn't live in the real world. And God is perfectly okay for you to live your way, and on the final day of your life here, don't worry about it. God's got, got, got it for you. So you can live your way, and, and you don't have, God is perfectly fine with that. And the question is, is, don't let anybody deceive you with empty words of saying, you can follow Christ in your own passions. You can follow Christ in your own desires. You can be both in the kingdom of God as well as your own kingdom. You say, don't be deceived. Do you believe God in his ways, or, or do you not? Remember back to the lost son. He did get a job after he'd run out of money. He found himself feeding pigs, as you would know for a young Jewish boy, that would have been terrible. The Bible says he was so hungry that he was actually envious of the pig's food, and he wanted to eat that which the pigs were eating. And so the question we have to understand or ask ourselves about sin in our life is do we see a the passions we have where sin leads us for what it really is? Do we see our disobedience and our rebellion for the reality of what it is? What our sin is, is in reality, it's hunger 
that's telling us we are not being satisfied in God. We're seeking our own ways. You could ask yourself this question. Have you ever finally had that desire of your heart so much that you were satisfied? And the answer is, of course you haven't. There's nothing here on planet Earth that can satisfy the human soul. What we realize is, is God is true, and when we, when we understand what he says is true of our sin, we realize that we cannot be satisfied in it. And all of our sin is an effort to satisfy our hunger in ways that will never truly satisfy us. What we should agree with is the issue is not whether or not sin is disgusting. You read the story of the prodigal son, and your assumption is, well, therefore, sin must be disgusting. Sin is not disgusting. If sin were disgusting, we wouldn't do it. Sin is amazing. That's why we do it. None of you have to be convinced to do something you want to do. Right? Maybe you do. If sin were disgusting, this would not be a sermon that's needed. Stop sinning. Well, of course we're not sinning. It's gross. The only thing that's gross about sin is when we see the results of sin in other people's lives. Somebody blows their marriage apart. We say, oh, that's disgusting. And we're doing the same thing. We just haven't got caught yet. So the only time sin is disgusting is when we look down our long religious noses and decide somebody's not measuring up to our standards. For the most part, sin is terribly appealing. That's the problem. And the problem is, is we see this appealing sin in front of us, and we think it's going to satisfy a hunger in our heart that can only be satisfied by God alone. Do we believe God is true? Do we believe God can really satisfy this hunger or not? When I don't believe it, I go for the sin. When I do believe it, I say, no, thank you. Don't be deceived, he says in Ephesians chapter 5. You can't have God and sin. You don't get to pattern the Christian life as one who is in Christ, who is living purely for their own desires and passions. He is saying these are mutually exclusive and, in fact, do not be in fellowship with anyone who says you can couple of places this comes up in the Bible. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. Don't get excited. It's not the fun part of Revelation where there's hailstones and whatnot. It's the letters to the churches. It's a letter to the church in Thyatira. He says this, I know your works, your love and your faith and your servants and your patient endurance and your latter works exceed the first. Wow, gold star, Thyatira hitting it out the park. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So you had this woman who was operating as a prophet in the church of Thyatira and she was teaching people, said, no, you can worship God through sexual immorality or you can worship God and experience and engage in sexual gratification outside of marriage. And he's saying, that doesn't work. She will be judged for the works of her heart and her teaching. And in fact, he says, cast her out. Otherwise, I will cast you out. He was referring to this church. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Wait for it. This will mess you up. This is going to ruin your whole day. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters of this world, since then you'd need to go out of the world. 
What I'm writing to you is about is not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler. Don't even eat with one. What do we have in judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Let God deal with the outsiders. This, this, verse, this is an incredible passage. Okay, we're about to go on a tangent. We've got plenty of time. We have turned it into a full-time job of the church to figure out how to tell the world how they're supposed to live. I think I just read a passage that says that's a terrible hobby for the church. Who's going to judge the world? Let God handle his business. But for those of us who claim the name of Christ, let's work diligently to help one another live in our identity as kingdom people and call one another to account. You got a buddy at work, he's not a Christian, you want to eat with him because he likes to do stuff that's horrible, horrible on the weekends. I can't hang out with that guy. My reputation will get ruined. Paul said, what are you talking about? The problem is you're hanging out with your Christian brother who does those things and you don't think it's a problem. Kick your Christian brother out the car and go get your non-Christian friend and hang out with him. Maybe he'll hear the gospel and get saved. Expel those who say they're in Christ and can also encourage living in sin. Someone says, oh, I can do this. Jesus has plenty of room in his kingdom for me to live this way. He's saying, get out. Seems a little harsh. Finally, uh, Luke 6, 43. I'm going to read this, and then we'll uh, close with a couple of thoughts. Luke 6, 43. This is Jesus again saying this. Uh, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a, a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. What Jesus is saying here is, I'm going to come into you and I'm going to give you a brand new heart. I'm going to wash you, make you righteous, make you holy, give you a new heart. And flowing from your new identity as in Christ, in the kingdom of God, fruit will come from you that will identify you as in Christ. If you don't have a new heart, that fruit's not going to come out. Because there's no place for it to take root. Root. We could say it this, how we behave and what we do doesn't necessarily make us unrighteous, but they reveal whether or not our heart is righteous. Made holy to live holy. Is God enough? We have to answer that question. If God is not enough, we're going to pursue satisfaction elsewhere. Made holy to live holy. Is God serious? If he's not serious about it, we're not going to take it serious. And we're going to live any old way we want. Made holy to live holy, is God true? Do we really believe him that he is giving us his good kingdom? All right, let me end with two or three different things. Uh, I hesitate to do this because I don't want to blunt the force of the passage. The passage says what it says. If you're reading it, it sort of sends a sweat down the back of your neck. You're reading it right. You're supposed to go, am I in the kingdom or not? I'm going to make sure I have a new heart. 
I want to live a kingdom way for God's purpose. But I want to make sure we understand on balance biblical teaching on this. Uh, So if you want, I'm going to read from Romans chapter 7, verse 21. Romans 7, 21. Here's what the author of Romans says. happens to be the same author as Ephesians, Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here's what the Apostle Paul has to say about his life. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, that is his body, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law that sin dwells in my members. Anybody experience that in your Christian life? Okay, I want to do the right thing. Oh, I also really, really want to do the wrong thing. Wrong thing seems pretty good. I don't think anybody will know. No, I want to do the right thing. No, I want... I mean, this is Christian life. Look what he says. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, that's a prayer a Christian can pray nearly every day. Oh, God, who is going to deliver me from this wrecked up body? Always pursuing the wrong ways. Verse 25 of Romans 7 Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Verse Chapter 8, verse 1, There is thou therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a massive difference in the Bible with a believer who is struggling with sin and another one who says, Sin can coexist with my walk with Christ. There is a major difference between those two. One person is fighting and struggling with sin every single day. It's a wrestling match. Some days he wins, some days he loses. And every day he's saying, God, who will deliver me from the body of death, thank God there is now therefore no condemnation. That is a struggle. That is a fight. When does that end? We'll celebrate the end of that for you at your funeral. Sin never quits. It just gets different as we get older. That's struggle with sin. If you are living the Christian life, you're going to be in that battle from now until the end of our life or the return of Christ. That it, there's a major difference between that and what we read about in 1 Corinthians and Revelation 2 and Ephesians 5.5, 5, which is somebody that says, you know what, I'm in Christ, so I can do whatever I want. His grace is sufficient, so I'm going to hit it out the park in terms of pursuing my passions. What he's warning about is an attitude that says, I can both live in the kingdom of Christ as well as the far off land. He's saying, no, you can't do both. Go into Google Maps. Tell it you're in both places at once. What's it going to say? Can't compute. It'll tell you how to get from here to there, but it won't let you be in both places at once. And that's how we want to live our Christian life. I want to live in the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of my flesh. Jesus is cool with that. And Jesus is saying, you're in the far off land. It's time for you to come back to the kingdom of Christ. There's a major difference between struggling with sin and acceptance of sin. Okay, three things I want you to do with this. Made holy to live holy. First thing, number one, I want you to admit something. You do not take sin or holy living as serious as God does. You do not take sin in your life or living Holy, that means set apart for Christ, as serious as God does. 
It's just a, a fact. 100% of you in the room, all, every single one of us, we don't take it as serious as God does. We take sin too lightly and doing the right thing too lightly. Admit. You don't take it as serious as God does. What do we call that when we admit something wrong in our life? Fancy theology word. Repentance. I'm wrong. You're right, God. I do not take serious. I do not take sin or living for you as serious as you do. Okay, second thing, trust. Believe what the Bible says. God is, in fact, good. His things are better than the things you're yearning for. Trust that he can actually change the patterns of your heart to desire good things instead of wrong things. Trust him that he can actually do work on your heart to change the the heart desires you have over time. Admit we don't take sin as seriously as he does. Trust that God is good and he can actually change our hearts for him. And finally, whatever it takes. This is what you might call the step of faith. That sin that we've been talking about this all morning, you've been hoping I won't mention it. I didn't need to, the Spirit told you. What do you need to do right now? What sideboards do you need to put up in your life that says, you know what, until my heart is changed by God to no longer desire that, I can no longer go there. I can no longer do that. I can no, whatever it is, what is it that you say, you know what, if I took sin as serious as God does right now, what's the whatever it takes in my life? Now, if you come back and you cut off your hand, that'll be really frustrating. It's not what we're saying here, but it is whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. You say, well, it might be kind of kooky. Yeah. It's kooky that you think you can sin and walk with the Lord. The prodigal son repented, realized he was wrong, and then he waited in the pigsty for the father to come get him, right? No, he said, what am I doing here? I'm walking home. That's that step of faith. Whatever it takes. What do you need to do in your life in Christ to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to stop living here. Ephesians chapter 2, we, we discover that we are saved by, Christ, by faith, uh, or I should say by grace through faith alone, and that Ephesians 2.10 2, says what? In order to do good works. Romans 12.1 says this, we are to live holy as an act of worship to the one who has redeemed us. Repent. Believe and then walk home.